Hello and welcome to my sixth ever podcast of How Not to Suck at the Stocks. This is your host, Dan Hansen. And as per usual, I got two disclaimers for you. Disclaimer number one is this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Inside, you're going to find absolutely zero actual, actionable financial advice. Once again, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Disclaimer number two, this podcast is extremely not safe for work. So consider yourself warned. All right, so if you were one of the literally zeros of people who listened all the way to the end of my last podcast, then you may remember I said I would either cover Ubiquity or Builder's First Source on this week's podcast. Well, it turned out that I lied. Instead, I'm going to cover Andrew Lowe's book, Adaptive Markets. And the reason I'm going to do that is because I'm actually part of a book club. I decided I wasn't a big enough nerd, so I went ahead and joined a book club through the uh, local CFA Society here in Chicago. So if you're a CFA candidate or a member, I highly recommend you join your local CFA Society. I've gone to some incredible events. I've met some uh, wonderful people. And this book club in particular here in Chicago is great. And like I said, the, the book in question was Andrew Lowe's Adaptive Markets. So I'm going to kind of dive in, do a little bit of a you know book review, synopsis, summary, whatever, rant, whatever you want to put it. Um, so let's, let's get started with that. So the crux of it is you already have the established way of thinking, which is called the efficient market hypothesis. If you don't know what that is, don't worry, I'll describe it in a bit. What Andrew Lowe's book does is comes along with what he calls the adaptive market hypothesis. Okay. And I'm going to use an analogy here. It's kind of like the Bible, right? Like you had the, the Jewish Bible and then when Christianity came out, it didn't just throw that book away. It said, okay, we're going to take the Jewish Bible, and we're going to call that the Old Testament. Then we're going to write in like a relatable main character. We're going to kind of ease up on the whole fire and brimstone thing. And we're going to create our New Testament. And together, they're going to form kind of like this, this new Bible, you know, the Christian Bible with the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay. That's kind of like what Andrew Lowe's adaptive markets hypothesis is. It doesn't just throw out the efficient market hypothesis. Instead, it builds on it with what he calls the adaptive market hypothesis. So I, I promised I would explain these terms. So uh, this is kind of like an explain it like I'm five. So the efficient market hypothesis basically says that markets, meaning you know the stock market in particular, is perfectly efficient. Um, what that means is Every day, every second of every day, you have millions of people buying and selling uh, stocks and bonds on the open market, and that creates, you know, like an open hand, or sorry, uh, the invisible hand of uh, the free market. It drives prices to equilibrium. It means that as soon as new information comes out about a company, that's immediately going to be reflected in the stock price. And the ramification, therefore, is you, as an individual investor, uh, can never beat the market because all the, all there is to know about the company is already perfectly uh, accounted for in the stock price. Um, and so they say you cannot beat the stock market uh, in the long run on a risk-adjusted basis. So those last two are qualifiers that, that I'll explain very briefly. 
in the long run basically means like, yes, in the short run, you might get lucky and beat the market, but over a long period of time, it's kind of like when someone goes to the casino, they might, you know, be up playing the slot machines or craps or something, but in the long run, they're going to lose all their money at the casino, right? It's kind of like the same thing with the stock market is in the short run, you might be able to beat the market, but in the long run, uh, you're not going to be able to, according to the official market hypothesis. And the second disclaimer of that whole risk-adjusted basis, uh, the way modern finance describes risk basically means short-term volatility. And what that means is like, so if you beat the stock market, uh, you had to take more risk in order to do that. Okay, like uh, you had to take more risk than someone who just invested in the market in order to have a high return. So that's what that means. That's what the official market hypothesis is, uh, essentially. Um, the... The Andrew Lowe's adaptive market hypothesis basically says markets are only sometimes efficient, but usually they're beholden to uh, evolutionary defects, uh, my words, not his, Uh, meaning when the stock market, when things are static, when things are business as usual, the efficient market hypothesis holds up very well. But when uh, the stock market is dynamic, meaning there's a lot of change. Uh, that's when emotions are running high, you know, fear, greed. That's when the efficient market hypothesis breaks down, according to Andrew Lowe, and the adaptive market hypothesis uh, takes over. So the adaptive market hypothesis, you can't really talk about the adaptive market hypothesis without explaining behavioral finance, which is a study that I find fascinating. It's uh, the subject of Charlie Munger's uh, wonderful lecture that you can find on YouTube called uh, The Psychology of Human misjudgment. And I've talked about it before. Um, But basically, the efficient market hypothesis says that people are rational. Okay, if you ever take an econ 101, you probably heard your your professor say that people are rational. Okay, they act in their own self-interest. They're rational. Uh, Behavioral finance basically says, have you met people? Like, people are not rational. People do not always act in their own best interest. And behavioral finance as a, as, a, as a school, whatever you want to call it, they actually study this and they do, you know, they do scientific uh, research. They, they do studies into uh, people acting irrationally. And so I'm going to bring up a couple examples uh, from the book, two of my favorite examples uh, from the book. Uh, the first um, human bias is called probabilistic matching. Okay, and I'll explain what that means. So this was the experiment, is they had a computer, and on the screen, 75% of the time, an A would pop up, and 25% of the time, a B would pop up. So 75% A, 25% B. Okay. Now, if you were true, and and you as a test subject, as a person taking the test, you'd have to predict what the next result was going to be, and you had to do this over and over again. Now, if you were being perfectly rational, you would always guess A. Right, because you know every roll of the dice, so to speak, is an independent event, and it's three times as likely to be A than it is to B. So every time you should just guess A, and that's just basic logic. Okay, but what they find is people don't actually do that. Instead, they exhibit what is called probabilistic matching. So seventy-five percent of the time they'll pick A, and twenty-five percent of the time they'll pick B. If they just picked A every time, they'd be right 75% of the time, which is pretty good. It's the best you can hope for. It's perfect. But by mixing it up and guessing B 25% of the time, a less likely answer, they actually drop that average down to, I think, about like two-thirds, somewhere in there. So they actually hurt their overall performance. Okay? 
So, and, and they've done this study countless times. They've done it with, you know, Harvard students and everything in between. Um, well, what I found fascinating is Andrew Lowe actually explains what he hypothesizes is the evolutionary basis for probabilistic matching. And so he gives an example, and I promise I'll keep this brief. Uh, he makes up a species called the Tribbles in honor of, you know, the Star Trek uh, species. And he, he makes up this environment um, where you have a group of triples, and they can either breed on a plateau or down in a valley. It's going to be sunny 75% of the time, meaning you're going to get scorched to death up on the plateau. Okay. And it's going to rain 25% of the time, meaning you're going to be drowned down in the valley. So if you were a rational triple, if such a thing exists, which it doesn't, then you would always be down in the valley because you're less likely to die down there. There's a 75% chance you're going to die in the plateau. There's only a 25% chance you're going to die in the valley. If you're a rational triple, you'd breed down in the valley. But here's the problem. If every triple did that as a species, then things would be going pretty well until the first time it rained and it wiped out the entire species, right? So our evolutionary uh, instinct is actually towards uh, probabilistic matching. Because what they found is, by doing, you know, on a computer, just running the study, is when the tribbles exhibit probabilistic matching, means 75% of the time they're down in the valley and 25% of the time they're up in the plateau, when they do that, uh, that actually maximizes their population growth over time. So hopefully I explained that well enough. So your probabilistic matching uh, is is an evolutionary uh, evolutionary trait, okay? And so to, to bring this back to the stock market, we might be wondering, well, that's all well and good. What the fuck does that have to do with stocks? Okay, so looking back, I don't I don't know the time. I don't know the ex- the, the time. Um, I don't know the exact percentages, but I believe on a year to year basis, about two thirds of the years the stock market is up, and about one third of the time it's of course down. And of course, just looking at a chart of the stock market over any length of time, you'll see that. Uh, the gains outweigh the losses. Okay. So any rational mind would always just belong the stock market. You'd say, okay, two thirds of the time it's going to go up. One third is going to go down. So I'm always just going to bet on it going up. Okay. Assuming the stock market moves in a random nature, which I believe it does. Okay. But that's of course not what people do. Instead, they like to try to dodge the raindrops. They don't want to only be up 25% of the years or sorry, uh, two-thirds of the years. They want to do better than that. And so, like I said, they jump in and out of the market. They predict recessions that, of course, never occur. Uh, They miss out on bull runs because they were sitting on scared money, and they end up doing worse. Just like uh, the person um, at the computer screen who sometimes picked B. Okay, They sometimes pick a bear case for the overall market. And so bringing it back to the tribbles for a second... It's like, yeah, so your evolutionary basis is to probabilistically match, but you have to kind of use your frontal lobe to override that instinct and say, okay, that may be great if I was a triple breeding someplace, but I'm not. I'm a human being investing in the stock market. So you have to override uh, that bias. All right. Hopefully hopefully that made sense. Um, let's see. And if not, read his book, God damn it. And let's see. So the second uh, example from his book, and this is one I, if I had one critique of the book, it's that it doesn't offer a lot of new studies. I mean, this triple thing was new for me. Uh, the second 
uh, study the ultimatum game is something you're going to find in a lot of behavioral finance texts. But uh, here, one second, I'm getting a drink here. One second. So what the ultimatum game is basically this, is uh, you have two people, okay? And one person's called the dictator, right? And so that person is given a hundred bucks, let's say, and they're told you can give any dollar amount you want to the other person, okay? So you can keep 99 for yourself and give the other person just a buck if you want, but here's the catch. That other person has to sign off on it. He has to agree to only receive that buck, and if he doesn't, then no one gets anything. So that's the ultimatum game. Okay. And according to economists, they believe that $1 is better than no dollars, so everyone should accept that buck. So if if you were playing this game and I was the dictator, I keep 99 for myself, I give you a buck, economists say, if you were rational, you would just keep that buck. You wouldn't, you know, say, fuck you, and no one gets anything. But of course, when econom- when they actually do the study, that's not what happens. When they do the study, people say, you can take that this dollar and shove it up your ass. No one's getting anything. Okay. And uh, this, this baffles economists because I, this is kind of a side tangent. I, I feel like economists forget that they're actually in a social science and they're supposed to be studying people, not numbers. And people just don't think about the math. They also think about things like... Uh, well, Andrew Lowe says fairness. I tend to think, uh, you know, people get disrespected. If you disrespect someone, uh, you know, if you try to fuck someone over, they're probably going to reciprocate that and try to fuck you over. So if you get, if you keep 99 for yourself and give one buck to that person, you're essentially fucking them over. So they're going to, in kind, fuck you over and be like, hey, I lose one buck, you lose 99. Sucks to suck, pal. Now, my point in bringing this up isn't just to insult economists. It's to say, well, actually, actually, I guess it is. Um, and this is actually to insult Andrew Lowe as well. They insult a strong word. Uh, they don't take into account the marginal utility of money. Okay. And what I mean by that is if you were to change this example into a world where you could say, now it's a hundred million dollars. Okay. And I'm the dictator. I'm going to keep 99 million for me and give you 1 million. Are you going to agree to those terms? Yes, fucking yes, absolutely. You're going to agree to accepting $1 million. Are you going to be kind of like, well, fuck, the other guy gets 99, I only get one? Sure. You might not like me. You might realize I screwed you over. But like the utility you're going to get from saying, fuck you, no one gets anything, it may have outweighed the buck, but it sure as hell ain't going to outweigh the million bucks, assuming that's life-changing money for you. And that concept of life-changing money is something I don't think uh, economists give enough credit. And when, when I mentioned the marginal utility of money, um, it's the basis for our, our progressive tax system. Uh, it, really simply, I can explain why there's a marginal utility of money. And what I, what I mean by that, a marginal utility of money, I should just find what the fuck that means. Um, the more money you have, the less each additional dollar is worth to you. And we're, we're kind of going over on time, so I'll just explain that very briefly. Is if you only had you know, 20 bucks to your name, like you were homeless out in the streets, you have to think very carefully how you spent that money. You'd be going for things like water and food, things like that. But if you were a millionaire and 20 and someone gave you 20 bucks, like, okay, well that 20 bucks would not be important. You could, you could put it into a paper airplane and throw it, throw it away. You wouldn't give a fuck. It wouldn't change your life at all. Whereas if you had no money, the 20 bucks would be significant. So 
All right. Uh, really quick before this podcast ends, because it's already gone way too long as far as I'm concerned, is uh, my review of the book. Overall, it was too long. There's a great quote in a book I do like called Rework that says, great directors cut good scenes to make great movies. Great directors cut good scenes to make great movies. Um, this book needed to be edited down. It's 420 pages of actual reading, not including endnotes, and it could have been half that pretty easily. Um, he just gives way too many fucking examples. Like every behavioral study that's like ever been done, he feels the need to include in his book as if, you know, it supports his adaptive market hypothesis. Uh, one member of the book club, uh, his name is Jason. He's a mathematician who actually hoped to have on the podcast uh, one day. He actually read through Andrew Lowe's academic papers and was fascinated by the more uh, technical and more succinct data presented in those. So if, you're not inclined to read the book, Adaptive Market, or Adaptive Markets, it's just called, which I wouldn't entirely recommend, then I would recommend you um, go through the academic papers of Andrew Lowe if that interests you. If you're interested in behavioral finance in particular, there's actually a book called The, the Little Book of Behavioral Finance. I forget the author, but it's part of the Little Book series. You can probably find it at the library. But yeah, The Little Book of Behavioral Finance, I would recommend. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Until next time.